0: Before I said anything else. Happy Father's Day. Woo. Yeah. Well, let's, let's give it another try. All right. Is that okay? Yeah. Happy Father's Day. Woo. Uh, yeah, we are not perfect. Um, and we might have a lot of things to repent for because of the way that we are, or we did um, raise up our children. But we loved you. And we love them, Right. And it's really important. Uh, We want to take just this moment to celebrate the fact that the Lord used you to bring people into this world. And, you know, we wish it would have been more perfect the way that we were doing it. But in his grace, we stand. Amen. And we thank for every, every person. Maybe he's no longer with you. Maybe he chose not to be with you. But nonetheless, there's somebody that will always be with us. And he is the one that we celebrate today as well. Our Heavenly Father, our Abba Father, our dear Father. Amen. He's so heavenly minded, but of no earthly good. Have you heard that? Have you heard that say before? He's so heavenly minded, but of no earthly good. And usually... That phrase, it speaks of somebody that is very knowledgeable of the scriptures or or theology, but really is not living it out at home or at their job, you know, that kind of stuff. This statement, what it could be said of many people, it, it could be spoken of many people, but it would never be spoken of the Apostle Paul. If there was somebody that was really married to not only theological precision, but also living it out, living it, modeling the faith to others, it was the Apostle Paul. And in the book that we're going to be reading today, in the section of Philippians 1:27 to 30, we're going to find out that he is asking his readers in Philippi, he wants to hear a report he wants to receive a good report about the Philippians whether he goes to see them or not that they would be standing firm that they would be looking forward to have this mindset of heaven while they are here on earth he's gonna include in this certain terminology one of them as a citizenship or a citizen but not of the world, but citizen of heaven. And in doing so, he's going to ask us to doing it in a certain way, by standing firm against opposition. So as we are going to read today in the book of Philippians, Philippians chapter 1, verses 27 to 30, we will find out that he's asking us to be not only hearers, but doers of the word, yes, to really have a passion for theological precision, for orthodoxy, orthos, sound, doxa, doctrine, sound doctrine, and yet at the same time have a passion for orthopraxy, sound practice, not only understanding what the word is saying, but knowing what to do with what is expressed in the word of God so that our lives will be transformed and others may believe as a result of our example and our witnessing. So what the Bible says here in Philippians chapter 1, verse 27, it says the following. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So that whether I come to see you or I'm absent, I may hear of you, that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign of them, or to them, of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God." For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also mm, suffer for his sake, engage in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. Would you bow with me? Dear Heavenly Father, we are here today celebrating you, thanking you for being our loving Father. Some of us don't have our earthly fathers anymore around us, but thank you that we can always count on you. Thank you that you will always be with us. You will be our loving, compassionate, and sometimes firm Father that will discipline us accordingly because you love us. And as we read today, Lord, there will be maybe opposition and the way that you're expecting us, not only the people in Philippi, but us today in the 21st century, to stand firm against opposition. Help us, Lord, to understand what you're expecting from us and to model to others what it is like to live as a citizens of heaven. Forth in Jesus name, we pray. Amen. Um oh, I thought I had it here. <laughs> I wasn't born in this country. And some of you are like, "Really? Your accent didn't give it out." But um, well, you know, but when I came to the U.S and uh, when I married Becky and then came to Moody and all of that, after a while and requ- all the requirements were met, I was granted this piece of paper or many papers. (laughs) Some of them are stamped, you know, some of those papers of uh, the places that I've been able to visit. If I still had my passport from Mexico, there were some places that probably I would have been denied entry, but this passport allowed me to go into many places that otherwise would have been shut down for me. So citizenship is something that is very valuable to us. Sometimes I think, you know, of the soldiers dying in Normandy in 1944, D-Day, so that now we could be writing songs that defile our country so that we could now, we, I'm not saying Antonio Muñoz, right? So that we as a nation allow people to burn our flag. You know, it's sad that people had to die for our freedom and we don't value such freedom but what is interesting is we should value the yes the, the citizenship that we have here the citizenship that we have but it's not the kind of citizenship that Paul is writing about if you see in verse 27 he's saying the following only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ." So this is really interesting because usually Paul would have used the word peripateo, to live, live accordingly. But in this case, he's choosing to use a word is politeustai, politeustai means, means, that's the problem of using too many languages at the same time, right? Politeuestai is to live as a citizen. So, in a sense, to have to love the country in a way that it is expressed by your conduct. Now, I don't believe that Paul is saying to the Philippians, "You need to live out as a citizens of Philippi." I think that in his mind, when he's using this word to live as a citizen, he's he's inviting us to consider that we while we are here walking on earth on this earth on Katy Texas on Fulshear on Houston that we need to have our mind set on things above on heavenly our heavenly citizenship that citizenship that was granted to us by believing in Jesus Christ that he died in our place for our sins and now we've been granted that citizenship not after certain years but automatically and the moment you believe, you were granted that citizenship in the new Jerusalem, in heaven, forever. So he's using this verb to live as a citizen. And now he's saying, in verse, only let your manner of life, the way that you conduct, that we conduct our lives in this earth, be worthy of the gospel of Christ. And I want, to, I want you to take a look at the first word only. Now this this word only is a word that is used to say only and only if. Only that you. He's, he's stressing so much the idea that he's saying, this is the most important thing that I'm about to say. Pay attention. Bear with me. Only that you would live as a citizen demonstrating where are you from not the united states of america but you are a citizen of heaven and before that then only if this is a conjunction then it's gonna tell us that this is related to the verse or the statements before about for to me verse 21 for to me to live is christ and die is gain if i'm about to live in the flesh that means fruitful labor for me Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I'm hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convince of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and your joy in the faith. So that in me may you, be, may you have ample cause to glory in Christ, because of my coming to you again. So he's saying, really, I'm, I'm, I'm placing between two different options. For me to live is Christ and die is gain. Yeah, yeah, I, I want to live here. And if I stay, it's going to be good for you people from Philippi. It's going to be great because it means that I'm going to be able to invest in you. Right? And we saw that last week. And to die is gain because being with him is the best that, we could, that could happen to us. But he's saying, but really I'm torn because I don't know what to choose. I want to be with him because it would be awesome. But I want to remain here with you. But let's not waste our times is something like what he's saying. How do we know that? Because of that word, only that. If I remain, let's take advantage of our time together. And now what he's saying is, I have a desire, I have a profound desire. He wants to receive a good report about the Philippians, whether he goes to see them or not, that they will walk in a worthy manner as good standing citizens of heaven. Now, how are we we supposed to do this? You know, a good citizen pays his taxes, a good citizen, you know, Is very well documented about who he's going to vote for and goes and votes. It exercises all his civil rights, right? So in the same way, we need to consider what areas of our citizenship in heaven are we supposed to address and be diligent about it. And the first thing that he says about after saying that walking in a worthy manner, now, where are we supposed to do this? How are we supposed to walk in a worthy manner? If he's gonna say eventually that there's people that are being raised within the church that are being opposed to the true gospel, and we need to oppose them. But is that the only way that we are to walk according to the gospel of Jesus Christ in a worthy manner? Or is it also does that only also include how we walk in our homes? How we walk in our jobs, how we walk with our friends, with our neighbors. You know, when we are walking, this, this was explained to me, and, and believe me, it doesn't come from this word, but it helps me to understand a concept, okay? When we walk, and he's talking about people walking, we need two feet, right? And one feet, one foot is for the personal foot. What I can do for myself, that's why I get up in the morning and I walk accordingly because I get up in the morning and I pray. and I, Things that I can do for myself, I read the scripture. Things that I can do for myself, I listen to the sermon again in live stream. Or I listen to other people that I respect because I need to walk, right, but I need one foot and I need the other, right, the community. I need you, and you need me. We are a community, and the only way that we're going to walk is by using both feet. How are we walking in our lives as citizens of heaven? Does that have anything to do with the way that we conduct ourselves at home, by loving our wives the way that they should be loved? By loving and respecting our husbands the way that they should be loved. By loving and leading our children the way that they should be led. By witnessing to those that are around us, whether in the community or at our jobs. Because if we are to work accordingly in a worthy manner, then it should have an effect. Not only when we are facing opposition against sound doctrine, but I believe it it has to bring implications to our everyday life. Not only, I believe, from this passage, not only knowing what good theology is, but practicing what a good Christian should live like. Now, how are we going to do this? Take a look at verse 27 again, the second part. So whether I come to and see you or i am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm. Now, this is a very interesting term because this is military terminology. He conveys the idea of firmness, steadfastness. Imagine civil war. The south against the north. Imagine other war, whatever it is. And the infantry is right here. And usually the infantry was the first line of defense, right? And they will be in front and they were the ones that probably suffered the most casualties. And all of a sudden you see the other army coming against you, against us. And this soldier that is right here holding his weapon, his, his rifle, what do you think is in his mind at that point when he sees the and he feels The ground shaking because his approaching is coming to you. What do you think is in his mind? What is happening in his body? Every single molecule in his body is saying one thing. Run! Run! Every single molecule of the body is saying run! But because he is going to stand firm, not by himself. But standing firm together, he's going to stay there because that's what, as a soldier is expected of him. He's not going to say, "I'm leaving because my needs are not being met." He's going to see what the best what's best for the team, what's best for the army, and the army is more important than one individual. So we stay together, we stand firm for the benefit of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Stand firm, number one, conveys the idea. And this is the idea, the verb is used in Greco-Roman literature to indicate the duty of a soldier in battle or to describe the taking of position face-to-face of an adversary. There's different places in the scripture that we read this like in Ephesians 6. let's think a little bit of what could how could we use this in a sense well thou then the next the next part in 27b says that standing firm in one spirit with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel so how do we stand we stand in one spirit the saints embrace this common cause so each other share the same body of Christ. Therefore, Paul is burdened by them standing firm, but as one man. United with one mind. United, united with one as one body. But not only as one body, united with one goal. Uh, a long time ago, Pastor Mitch did this. I don't know if you remember, you cannot see this. This looks like the one. On his sabbatical but it's not this is shorter and this is the mission it, it explains the mission the motives the map and the marks of our church and he begins by saying these are all this all were of one mind and we're continually devoting themselves to prayer acts 1 and then he goes to say what are uh what's the mission of our church so redeemer community church this is what we are hoping to do. This is what we are ho- hoping to accomplish. To joyfully follow Christ and help others do the same. You have seen it all over. When we used to give our bulletins, it was at the bottom. And even in some places, it's written all around. Right? Like in our, uh, our um, hall right there. And it says, joyfully follow Christ and help others do the same. This is not only about what I'm doing, following the Lord but is also helping others to become disciples. Disciples that have certain characteristics, marks, as we would call them. And these marks are people that seek God. Disciples are well, mature disciples that seek God, that are loving others, that are pursuing holiness, that are serving the church, that are to steward resources, that are to share the gospel, and multiply disciples. That's what we should be united for. Just like when Jude, the book of Jude, he is saying, if you remember, the book of Jude is only one chapter, and at the end of that um, of that chapter, he's saying, beginning with Chapter verse seventeen, but it says in verse twenty three, have others save others by snatching them out of the fire and to others show mercy with fear now if you read the previous part in the book of Jude he's saying that saving others from their error from bad doctrine doctrines that have been infiltrating into the church he's saying try to convince them and save them by snatching them out of fire but you think that is only about Christians that are believing differently than we are I think this also could be said of people that are dying literally without the Lord Jesus Christ. And we need to be united as one front, as one man, going after people, going after the world to bring them to reconciliation. Because there is no, chap- there is no plan B. There's only plan A, Jesus Christ. But when you say that, then you are inviting opposition because you know we are very PC nowadays politically correct oh no 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 don't say that Antonio don't say that you might offend other people other races you might offend other people's groups other religions just let's talk a little bit about the history of truth the concept of truth where is truth allocated Truth, if you, would, if you would have asked a Jew in times of Jesus Christ, where is truth? He would quickly say, truth is here. Well, not even here, they would say, because this, has, this includes the New Testament. Truth is in the Old Testament, in the Torah. Torah, nevihim Eketuim. The whole Old Testament. But then, you know, Jesus Christ comes along, and then in John 14, 6, he says, I am the way the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Wow, he's claiming exclusivity. Oh, no, no, that's a big no-no nowadays. Nobody should claim exclusivity, nor... Without having, then, opposition. But then, you know, he goes up to heaven, dies for us, goes up to heaven, he's risen again, The church continues to preach what is truth. And eventually, 4th century on, the church gets the idea that whatever the church says is truth, is truth. And if you say otherwise, I'll burn you at the stake. Yeah, we'll dialogue a little bit, and then I'll burn you at the stake. Because whatever the church says is truth, that is truth. Then along came another person on October 30th, 1517 and said, Ah, no, at Fontes, let's go back to the fountain. Let's go back to the original documents and see, discover what is truth. And he agrees with the Jewish people. He agrees primarily with Jesus Christ because he is the way, the truth, and the life. And no one goes to the Father except through him. And he says, Ah, ah. I cannot follow you, church, because not everything you are saying is truth. Only what the Bible says is truth. And he cussed him, and cussed him dearly, and his name was Martin Luther. hundred years later, because now people felt that they could say to the church, you don't have the truth, then people say, you know, great illustration. Now the church... Now the truth is whatever I can observe, I can touch, I can see. And if I can see it, I don't have to believe it. Then truth changes again because now it becomes humanistic. Truth is whatever, not church, whatever I say is truth. And then along came modernity. And then it's not, truth is whatever technology can achieve. And then technology gets us into First World War and then Second World War. So everybody turns around and says, "Uh uh-uh, really? No one, no one has the truth. So pluralism merges and goes into postmodernity. No truth can be defined, truth cannot be found, or truth cannot be absolute. And if you say you have the truth, then you're lying. And you're an intolerant person, and you're offending me. You know, they say, the sociologists say nowadays that Europe is not only postmodern, Europe is post. Christian. And some may say, maybe anti Christian. You think we are headed that way here in America? Where if you stand for truth, you might receive opposition from neighbors, from relatives, from government, from other churches? What Paul is preaching back then about being one, a united front against bad doctrine, because there is sound doctrine, and for sound doctrine to be preached, then it means that there's bad doctrine, doctrine that is not sound. How are we going to be facing that? How are we going to repel bad doctrine? You know, I've been been—I've visited many churches, and I've never met one that said, "Yeah, you know, we really don't care for truth here. We really don't care for sound doctrine. You know, we, are, we really are a church that stands for anything but, you know, just don't come here and preach sound doctrine. I've never faced a church that says that. Every single church believes that it's preaching somehow a form of sound doctrine. But then it's up to whom to decide what is sound doctrine or not. And who is it to defend that before we lose the power, before we lose sight and, and the compass, and we don't even know what that is. Can you define it? Can you believe it? Are you willing to die for it? Not in a metaphorical way only, but in a realistic way, because then what, it, what Paul is saying here, I believe, is that we need to be heavenly minded and of earthly good. We need to save others by snatching them out of the fire, the fire, the fire of confusion, the fire of theological imprecision, the, fi- the fire of error or the fire of hell. And for that, we need to do one thing. The continues 27E, Many are going to say, wow, it's only one verse. Don't worry, we'll get through it. Verse 27 at the end. With one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. So I'm going to need the Harringtons here, please. Mike and Sarah, please. No, just Mike and Sarah. Thank you. Just Mike and Sarah. Thank you. You don't have no. You, you don't even know what is going to happen right now. But let's let's face each other. Let's face each other right now, please. I know they are incredibly incredibly uncomfortable, and I love that. <laughs> and I'm fine with that. But let's act. Just look at each other. Don't look at everybody else. Act like like you're fighting at each other, like if you are boxing. All right? Just like just just like that. Just put your fist like that. All right? Okay, like that. <laughs> No, really, like you're defending each other. You know, this is what the world feels that uh, Christian marriage should look like. You know, opposing each other, being at each other's throats. This is my demand. This is what I want. No, I'm not going to give. No, uh uh-uh. But being together for the gospel, now turn around and in each other's backs. Yeah. And now Again. This is what unity should look like for us as Christians. Everybody battling against us, against our marriages, against our parenting, against our own church. And we united with nothing to separate us so that we could win some people and reconcile them for the Lord. So that they could see our modeling a Christian marriage. And they would yearn for that not fighting at each other, not at each other's throats, but against anything that opposes us. Thank you very much. <laughs> like, <laughs> thank you, yeah, they, they deserve that, sorry. So when he's saying here that we need to battle together, that, that, that's a, it's a difficult situation, right? So I want my rights to be heard. I want my rights to prevail. And, and I believe that sometimes when we say, you know, I, I'm leaving because this church is not meeting my needs. Uh, that's a way that the church begins to weaken. Because by, we, by you going somewhere else, we're losing your very important talents and gifts given to this church for the furthering of the kingdom. We need to do a better job, of course. But we need you. We need each other. battling together as one man for what it says here for the faith of the gospel now he's not saying for the faith faith believing in christ this should be understood as one he's saying in jude 3 jude chapter 1 verse 3 but the body of truth the doctrine that which we consider doctrine in general and the way that we should do it is by sinantholontes what Sinanthelontes, contending, fighting over something that is worthy of keeping. Because my dear brother and sister, the gospel of Jesus Christ is under attack. Traditional marriage is under attack. Traditional parenting is under attack. And it's up to us to defend what is right. And how are we going to defend it? Well, not only by speaking nicely. But by living it out by modeling to others what a Christian marriage looks like what parenting looks like in a biblical home for the faith of the gospel so when people come to our homes when people come to our churches they should see they should understand what is that body of truth the doctrine that we hold and what we believe and, and it suggests that it's not an individual effort but a joint effort I need you and you need me, we need each other. Pretty much like an army or an athletic team. In order to win, they need to act together, not as, indivi- not, a, not as individuals, but as a body united in one front. I'm somewhat fearful of the state of this world, my friends. And the thing is, here it says, verse 28, and not frightened in anything By your opponents. How could you not be frightened when you look at the news? How could you not be frightened by what is going on around us? And yet the apostle is saying, don't be frightened. Of course, what is going on? He's describing an internal situation that's going on in the church. There's opposition against Paul. And he's saying that this opposition that he faced while he was there with them 10 years before... It's still there. It's still a struggle 10 years later because he's heard that verse 30. You see verse 30, he's still saying, that battle that I was battling back then is still very much present right now. That's a battle within the church. However, is it the only battle that a Christian faces? Only internal battles? No also external battles. He's going to say that it's necessary so that the evidence, so that it would be evident to show who is saved and who is not. And obviously, the saved ones are going to defend, try to defend sound doctrine. And that's what he says in uh, verse um, 28. And not frightening anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction but of your salvation and that from God. So what is he saying up to this point? That we need to be heavenly minded in order to be of good good here on this earth by transforming our lives and by helping others following Christ so we fulfill our mission by joyfully following Christ and help others do the same—not only knowing what is truth, but battling for that is truth, and helping others to understand and live in a way that is honorable to the Lord. This reminds me of 3 John 1:4. If you remember, John is writing to his children, and he said, "I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth." So this is very similar in what he's saying is very similar also to um to james when he's saying that we need to be not only hearers of the word but doers of the word our faith has to have feet to be enhanced to be able to operate and to and to fulfill what is expected but then at the end he says something very interesting 29, for it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also, huh? Uh, You know what? I I didn't like my verse, the verse in my, in this person. Can I have a different version, please? Because in mine, it says that he's giving me not only a privilege of suffering, uh, of believing, but also a privilege of suffering. Hey, you know what? I believed in Christ because one lady back in 1989 told me that if I believed in Christ, all my problems would be solved. And I want to find that lady and tell her a couple of things. You know what? Because she didn't read this to me. She didn't say that I was given the privilege not only to believe, but to understand and to live suffering in my own flesh, not only mentally but physically, and I really don't like that. That's a part of Christianity that is not very popular nowadays. Nowadays, it's very popular. You believe and you'll have your Lamborghini. You believe and you'll have your well. In my case, it's a Maserati. But but you choose your own sin. Um. You choose the things that you covet, anyway. And the thing is, if you believe, then it will be done. And some say, you have power in your word. And it, my brother, I have power just because the Lord is operating in me. I have power because the Holy Spirit lives in me. But I cannot make a glass of water appear right now here. It's not very popular to say that suffering is part of Christianity and yet is what he's saying right now consider your privileges the privilege of believing we are blessed by having been convinced by the gospel of Jesus Christ through the power and help of the Holy Spirit John 16:8. he says that the Holy Spirit had come and is coming to convince who The world from sin, righteousness, and judgment. And we were so blessed to be convinced by the Holy Spirit and kneel down and say, Yes, Lord, I believe. I believe that by the power of the the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, when He died in the cross, and I believe in that. I believe now that I was saved at that moment because that's what the Bible says. And I have been given that privilege by God to believe. And not only to believe that he's going to take me to heaven, but to believe that he's capable of taking me to next Friday. Because sometimes we live in a very confused system, right? We believe that he can take us to heaven. But Lord, my account is in zero and I don't think that you can do anything about it. Lord, I'm facing this situation right now and I don't know if you're going to help me. <laughs> Rest assured that he is really capable of saving us, giving us eternal life and helping us to whatever we're facing right now. But why? You know, a question that I kept having when, this, when I read this is, how does my suffering exalt Christ. Why is it accomplished? By me suffering something. I understand believing. Yay! I believe in Christ. I've been giving salvation. I've been granted forgiveness of all my sins. I have a new name that only God knows. Amazing! Hey, 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 hey. but the part of suffering, could you leave that out? Could we just take it off right now? You know, could you... I wish, but we can't, but we shouldn't. You know, we recently have buried a few dear friends in the Spanish ministry, right? And Patrice, Ugo and others have faced a lot of problems. But I remember, you know, back in 2012, we have merged with a different church it was going very well, and then all of a sudden I received a phone call. You have four elders in your church, and we want $10,000 for each one of the elders so that we won't kidnap them. We call that extortion, right? And we know you have a blunt wife, American, so for her we need $20,000. And if you really want to have peace with us, you're going to give us that, and then we're going to leave in peace. At the same time, my daddy is in the hospital, dying from a long disease. My diabetes is out of control because of all the stress. People are leaving the church thinking, there's sin in the church. Something, because all the things that we're facing, we lost the property that was worth a million and a half, three, they said million and a half dollars. Others say that at three million dollars, and we lost that. And we were left in the streets with 220 people. And I'm thinking, wow, Uber sounds really good right now. I begin with, toying with the idea of not continuing in ministry anymore. Because life, be, life became so hard. And then the Lord, in 45 minutes solve the situation the way that he only can do. And when I look back at those year and a half and how the Lord in 45 minutes solved almost every single situation in less than a week. I look back at that and I think, yeah, there was a lot of suffering. But he said push through, stand firm, don't do it alone, do it with others. It's not good for men to be alone and that's not only in marriage my friends. It's not good for us to be alone. We need to stand firm together. Because there's a world out there that is becoming antagonistic toward us. And when we think of the ways the Lord has helped us us through our suffering before. Then that we could reach back and say, I remember when you helped me. And I know you're going to help me right now. Because you've done it in the past. And you're still faithful today. So when he's talking about that suffering, my dear brothers and sisters, suffering for Christ, verse 29, for his exaltation, for it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, not you, but of Christ, not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. You know, that's that's a part of the gospel that I wish he could live out. I don't like suffering, either mentally or physically. I don't like that. But reading C.S. Lewis, some of you love the Chronicles of Narnia, right? He wrote another book called The Problem of Pain. And in The Problem of Pain, he says, the problem of reconciling human suffering with the existence of a loving God it's only inexplicable as long as we attach a tribal meaning to the word love and look on things as if men were to be the center of the universe. When are we going to understand that men is not the center of the universe? That is God and his glory and his plan what is driving everything that he does, including suffering. In the case of the people in Philippi is the opposition that they're receiving and perceiving from others. In your case, in my case, I don't know what you're going through right now but isn't it comforting to know that even in the midst of suffering he always has a plan? I don't understand it but I believe it. Because if I don't believe it, then I will be in distress. Another thing that, he, that C.S. Lewis writes in this book, The Problem of Pain, is the following God whispers to us in our pleasure. He's saying, I love you, in our pleasures. He speaks to us in our conscience. But shouts to us, shouts to us in our pain. Pain is God's megaphone to steer a deaf world. The world has said, there's no God, there's no God, there's no God, there's no God. I don't see it, I don't believe it. And God brings pain into someone's life. And all of a sudden they're kneeling down and saying, if there is a God, I need you to show me the way. Pain is God's megaphone, and if this is true of the, of the world, is it true for the believer? I don't like exercising, as you can see, that's, that's against my DNA, and I don't like exercising because it produces pain, especially the next day, right? When you feel like, Lord, just take me home, take me home right now, please. But if it wasn't for that stress that we put in our muscles, we wouldn't grow. If it wasn't for that pain, we wouldn't grow to the extent that we want to. Suffering has its purpose. So in conclusion, let's understand scripture to the point that we can have a wonderful theological debate. Yes, I'd love to talk about you. what next week is going to be about. The kenosis of the Lord. The hypostatic union. The the union of two natures. Oh, I'm ready for that. But are we ready to live in humility like what that passage is talking about? Humility and obedience. Because to me that is more important. That's what is driving that passage. Humility and obedience more than theological precision of kenosis and the hypostatic union. And yet we are savoring at the thought that we're going to talk about that what if we would just grow more in our humility and our obedience? Because that's the thing. Theological precision should bring lives that glorify our Lord. So, in conclusion, let's be hearers of the word and doers of the word. Let's commit to walk in a worthy manner to glorify our Lord and give testimony of the saving grace of our Lord, even if we're going through pain. Three applications to end. I would encourage you, these are not, these are not commands, but these are really good encouragements, using the passage to cause something for us to do. Would you identify one area of change to walk more worthily, in a worthy manner would you identify at least one area to change so that we could walk in a worthy manner it could be the way you're speaking to your spouse it could be the way that you're talking to your children it could be the way that you are saying okay lord you've been saying for many times um Open your house so that you could have another community group there. Okay, I'll do it. Yes, Lord, I'm going to open my house. No, maybe it is. I want you to be a community group leader. Yes, Lord, I've said no in the past, but I'm ready to say yes. Will you identify one area of change so that you could walk a little bit better in a worthy manner? Number two, let's focus on the unity, our unity, to glorify the Lord. Confronting when we need to confront each other, but loving when we need to love each other. Forgiving when we need to forgive each other so that we could walk in unity. As Paul desired the Philippians to walk in unity, so we are to walk in unity. And finally, are you suffering something? Can you say from the bottom of your heart, I will trust you. Can you say it with me? I will trust you. And would you allow me to pray for you who are suffering, who are going through something difficult, so that the Lord would shine his glory upon that suffering and it will be clear to you why is he allowing that suffering to happen? Heavenly Father, Thank you so much for your word that comforts our hearts. Father, and in a world that every day grows more antagonistic to you, in a world that every day grows angrier and angrier toward you and your church, help us to be united as one front, standing our ground, standing firm as one army, in one spirit battling together for the furthering of your kingdom. May when others think of Redeemer Community Church we think of, of a church that is walking in unity and giving you glory in everything that we try to do. But Father, at the same time, I want to pray for those of us that are right here. We pray for our pastor. We love our pastor and his family. You are doing something amazing in his life. Help us to walk alongside him in prayer, kneeling down. Father, surprise us. Even as we are speaking, you have the power to heal. Not only him, but anybody that is going through anything right now, Lord. Thank you that you are our father and we celebrate you today our good father our awesome father and it's to you that we come united to ask that you would help anybody that is going through difficult times a difficult marriage a child that is that is leaving the faith or not walking accordingly father we pray That you would help us in whatever need we have holy spirit we trust you that you're going to encourage today but if it's your will oh father you will heal for your honor and your glory and we thank you for reminding us that you are expecting us to live accordingly According to your gospel so that many would come to believe forth in jesus name we pray amen